Chapter 19, Part 2 The Iraqi Civil War Comes Into the Open January to June 2006 Of The U.S. Army in the Iraq War, Volume 1 By U.S. Army Operation Iraqi Freedom Study Group This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adam Cable The Year of the Police Page 545 the disappointing performance of the Iraqi security forces in Operation Scales of Justice and the immediate aftermath of the Samara bombing showed that they were far from ready to take the level of responsibility that coalition leaders had hoped they would shoulder in 2006. MNFI and MNSTCI had begun the year with a set of plans to make 2006 the, quote, year of the police, end quote in which the coalition would place special emphasis on building the capabilities of the Interior Ministry's local police and border troops. Thus, they could eventually take over internal security duties from the Army, as Colonel William Hicks's 2005 counterinsurgency survey had recommended, and as Casey and other commanders believed was necessary for the long-term success of the counterinsurgency effort. Three weeks before the Samara bombing, MNSTCI had given Casey a plan for, quote, accelerating the year of the police, end quote, noting that the goal of the enhanced effort was to reach transition readiness assessment level two for police stations, which would, quote, equal transition and coalition forces off-ramping, end quote. To get the Iraqi police to this level, MNSTCI would discard its police partnership program in favor of more robust mentoring. Using the special police and military transition team programs as a model, MNSTCI would create police transition teams, or PTTs, that would eventually place coalition advisors in nearly 200 provincial, district, and local police stations with the goal of improving community policing in the 10 strategic cities identified in MNFI's campaign plan. On the ground, the police transition teams would be built around MNSTCI's 500 International Police Liaison Officers, or IPLO, civilian police professionals from around the world who had volunteered to mentor the Iraqi police. Most of these police professionals were either contractors with former law enforcement experience or traffic police or other local law enforcement officers seconded by their governments. Few, if any, were paramilitary police units, such as the Italian Carabinieri or the French Gendarme. MNSTCI's previous experiences with the international officers had shown that the program tended to be ineffective because the lightly armed officers with no military training rarely left the safety of coalition forward operating bases. However, under the new PTT concept, the liaison officers were paired with interpreters and a military police squad that would allow the IPLOs to move more freely and interact with the Iraqi police whose capability they were supposed to be building. To meet this increased requirement for military police, MNFI requested an additional five military police companies to join the two brigades already deployed for the mission. The arrival of nearly a brigade's worth of National Guard military police made the total in-theater military police contingent an extremely large one for the Army's low-density military police corps, but also made it possible for the first time for the coalition to place transition teams with local police, and not just the special police. At the same time, to restore the crumbling local police stations, MNSTCI would oversee $425 million in building and renovation contracts. 
This effort was complicated because many police stations were merely leased from private owners who, in some cases, took advantage of the upgrading of their property to raise the rent, sell the renovated facilities, or release them to higher-paying tenants. Like the local police, the Interior Ministry's Department of Border Enforcement would receive heightened MNSTCI attention in 2006 as well. The plan to grow the number of border transition teams, or BTTs, from 15 to 26 was adjusted to reflect heightened concerns with Iranian malevolence. Because a steady drumbeat of intelligence in late 2005 and early 2006 had warned of Iranian involvement in explosively formed penetrators or EFP smuggling and sectarian violence, MNFI and MNSTCI leaders decided that most of the new BTTs would deploy to the Iranian border, previously largely without any coalition presence, though the new teams would not be in place until the spring. As these initiatives were getting underway, MNSTCI and the Interior Ministry consolidated the originally Sunni-majority Special Police and the Shia-majority Public Order Brigades in April 2006, shortly after their lackluster performance in Operation Scales of Justice. The amalgamated police units were rebranded as National Police Brigades, with each of the two formerly separate elements forming a National Police Division headquarters under the Ministry of the Interior. In mute testimony to the increasingly dangerous security environment, MNSTCI decided to outfit the national police units with heavy weapons such as RPK and PKM machine guns and rocket-propelled grenades, an effort that paralleled a similar program to issue each Iraqi army battalion eight mortars, eight DSHK heavy machine guns, ten SVD sniper rifles, and ten RPGs. These new armaments for the National Police and Iraqi Army represented a further reversal of the coalition's original 2004 plan not to provide heavy weapons to Iraq's security forces. They also highlighted an underlying conundrum that had bedeviled the coalition's advisory mission from the start. On one hand, MNSTCI and MNFI planners intended that the Iraqi police would eventually perform the true rule-of-law functions of a democracy, investigations, arrests, and processing the accused through a criminal justice system. On the other hand, realists in both headquarters knew that such techniques were not what Iraq needed in the midst of an insurgency and intense civil violence. Providing Iraqi police units with only handcuffs, Glock pistols, and fingerprinting kits was likely to result in dead policemen. As a result, the coalition was effectively training and equipping the police as paramilitaries capable of conducting counterterrorism and counterinsurgency operations, a fact at cross-purposes with the goal of creating police on the beat performing rule-of-law functions. The addition of transition teams for the local police and border forces added to the already complicated picture of Provincial Reconstruction Teams, or PRT, Special Police Transition Teams, or SPTT, military transition teams, or MIT, and several varieties of special operations forces deployed across Iraq. In theory, these elements would follow the guidance of battlespace-owning commanders and synchronize their activities with the commander's intent. However, in reality, the growing array of advisory organizations made maintaining unity of effort within the coalition's brigade and division areas of responsibility even more difficult than before. The Return of Lieutenant General Peter W. Corelli, page 547. 
Amid the escalating sectarian violence and new campaign plan of spring 2006, most of the U.S. tactical units and their headquarters were rotating out of the country, meaning that in many places newly arrived units were the ones dealing with the deteriorating security situation. In January, Thurman's 4th Infantry Division took over responsibility for Baghdad from Major General William Fuzzy Webster and the 3rd Infantry Division. In late February, Major General Richard Zilmer and 1st MEF replaced Major General Richard Huck's 2nd MEF as the headquarters for MNFW. Unlike previous Marine rotations, the 1st MEF headquarters was restructured so that the 1st Marine Division headquarters did not have to deploy, thereby reducing redundancy in the Marine Command structure as well as the number of Marines deployed. In a break with Marine doctrine, for the first time in the war, a MEF would directly command two Marine RCTs and an Army BCT without any intermediate layer of command. Also in February, Colonel Sean McFarland's 1st Brigade, 1st Armored Division, a legacy brigade, replaced Colonel H.R. McMaster's 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment in Tel Afar. Within this series of handovers, Lieutenant General John Vines and his 18th Airborne Corps relinquished duties as MNCI to Lieutenant General Peter Corelli and 5th Corps on January 19th. Corelli's return to Iraq came little more than a year after leaving Baghdad as commander of the Army's 1st Cavalry Division and handing responsibility for the city to Webster and the 3rd Infantry Division. Corelli had left Baghdad in early 2005 deeply concerned that the U.S. Army's culture was leading its tactical units to take far too violent an approach to their operations and to view their role too narrowly in the fluid counterinsurgency campaign. In Corelli's judgment, it was fairly easy for U.S. brigades to focus on the security component of the campaign, especially the capturing and killing of the armed resistance. However, he believed an over-reliance on this approach was unnecessarily fueling the insurgency. In a widely circulated Military Review article in summer 2005, Corelli voiced his frustration along with his prescription that the Army should embrace the full spectrum of operations. Quote, it is no longer sufficient to think in purely kinetic terms, he wrote. Executing traditionally focused combat operations and concentrating on training local security forces works, but only for the short term. In the long term, doing so hinders true progress and, in reality, promotes the growth of insurgent forces working against campaign objectives. It is a lopsided approach. End quote. Arriving in Baghdad in January 2006, Corelli set about establishing a, quote, focus on improving Iraqis' quality of life, end quote, emphasizing more precise and measured kinetic responses, the improvement of economic conditions, and the provision of basic services to the Iraqi population. As he published his first MNCI operations order in April, he also encouraged his units to reduce what he saw as their over-reliance on raids and to focus more on the non-lethal methods he believed would lead to more enduring results. Echoing the approach he had taken as MNDB commander when he organized his division to deliver sweat, or sewer, water, electricity, and trash services, Corelli aimed to have MNCI's political and economic development efforts catch up with its security efforts. It was a sharp break from previous commanders who had accepted the importance of pursuing all the lines of effort, but had generally believed that putting money or effort into political and economic development before the security situation had stabilized was folly. Corelli, by contrast, 
believed that the fastest way to stabilize the security situation was through economic development. Quote, It is absolutely ludicrous, this concept that somehow you have to get to that level of security that will allow commerce to occur, end quote, he told reporters in mid-2006. In his first few months in command, Corelli became more certain that the Army's culture required adjustment toward the non-kinetic factors of counterinsurgency. He was cognizant of the increasing sectarian violence in spring 2006, but also convinced that U.S. units' missteps were contributing to the insurgency and violence, particularly in escalation of force incidents in which a perceived threat to coalition troops resulted in the death or injury of civilians. Corelli's headquarters monitored these incidents closely, and Corelli himself believed that decreasing the number of escalation of force incidents was not only a moral imperative, but also a necessary step that would stop some Iraqis from joining the insurgency. A study on such incidents commissioned by Corelli immediately after he arrived validated his suspicions, concluding that, quote, CF, or coalition forces, escalation of force casualties against Iraqi civilian population far exceed the threat posed by them, end quote. The study also found that 81% of escalation of force incidents occurred during coalition force movement under conditions that gave soldiers and Marines very little time, often only seconds, to make life-and-death decisions on whether approaching Iraqis were a threat. As a result, most escalation of force incidents resulted in coalition forces firing on Iraqi civilians. Of the 4,492 incidents recorded between January 2005 and January 2006, only 67, or 1.5 percent, actually involved insurgent attacks. Convinced that some units were acting too aggressively, Corelli was predisposed to react strongly when, over the first few months of his command, allegation after allegation of violations of the laws of armed conflict and the rules of engagement landed on his desk. The Haditha Killings Barely a month after taking command, and just as sectarian violence was about to escalate in central Iraq, Corelli was confronted with evidence supporting his belief that systemic problems in U.S. military culture were creating an overemphasis on kinetic operations. When Corelli learned that Time magazine planned to report allegations that Marines had deliberately killed 24 civilians in Haditha the previous November, Corelli quickly opened an investigation, which was initiated on February 12th. The allegations were disturbing, and Corelli judged that, if true, they had the potential to do as much damage to the coalition's interests as the Abu Ghraib scandal. The story did not take long to emerge under investigation. In the aftermath of an improvised explosive device, or IED, attack that destroyed a high-mobility multipurpose wheeled vehicle, or HMMWV, and killed a Marine, the remainder of the Marine squad killed the occupants of a passing civilian vehicle and then systematically cleared nearby buildings, using grenades for forced entry and shooting the unarmed civilian residents in the head, chest, and back. None of those killed had been found with weapons, and the dead included elderly Iraqis, 76 and 66 years old, and children, 3, 4, 5, 10, and 15 years old. The initial MNCI investigation, completed on March 9th, highlighted, quote, 
inadequate and untimely, end quote, reporting of the killings through the chain of command, which led Corelli to open a second investigation and refer the case to the Naval Criminal Investigative Service based on the possibility of criminal misconduct. The initial Marine report of the incident filed in November had been highly inaccurate, blaming the IED blast for the deaths of 15 civilians and indicating that eight insurgents had been killed in the aftermath of the ambush, despite considerable evidence to the contrary. An Army Regulation, or AR, 15-6 investigation by Major General Eldon Bargewell, MNFI's Director of Operations, completed on June 15th, did not find evidence that the Marine chain of command had attempted to cover up the incident. However, it did conclude that Marine leaders had displayed a lack of interest in investigating the massacre and had created an atmosphere in which, quote, civilian casualties, even in significant numbers, were viewed as routine and as the natural and intended result of insurgent tactics, end quote. Bargewell determined that the Marines' training on the Rules of Engagement, or ROE, and the Law of Armed Conflict, or LOAC, had been adequate, but that the command climate from platoon through MNFW levels, quote, may not have consistently or professionally encouraged the disciplined application of ROE and LOAC, end quote. He also recommended that, quote, the USMC should determine if the command climate and philosophy of RCT-2 and subordinate units could have been a contributing factor in the misapplication of tactical firepower, end quote, during the Haditha incident. While Corelli and his command were still digesting the initial Haditha inquiry and initiating a formal investigation into the incident, similar crises were developing elsewhere. On April 26th in Hamdaniya, seven Marines and a Navy corpsman from 3rd Battalion, 5th Marine Regiment, allegedly executed an Iraqi civilian and placed an AK-47 and shovel next to his body to provide justification for the shooting. By June 21st, the week after Bargewell completed his Haditha report, those involved in the execution were charged with murder, kidnapping, conspiracy, larceny, and providing false official statements. General Corelli and Colonel Steele The next incident occurred on May 9th during the 3rd Brigade 101st Airborne Division's Operation Iron Triangle near Mutana in Salahuddin Province, in which members of Company C, 3rd Battalion, 187th Infantry Regiment, executed three detainees and tried to cover up the killings. The ensuing investigation raised questions in the mind of Corelli about the command climate and the aggressiveness of the entire brigade. The commander of that brigade, Colonel Michael Steele, had commanded a ranger company during the Black Hawk Down battle in Mogadishu in 1993, and from that experience he had drawn the lesson that his soldiers, above all else, must be prepared to fight a determined enemy. Steele had employed this lesson during his brigade's pre-deployment training, emphasizing the skills necessary to kill the enemy and offering unit commemorative coins to soldiers who had achieved confirmed, quote, kills, end quote, of insurgents. Steele had also banned the practice of firing warning shots, a decision which stood in contravention of the rules of engagement for the Iraq Theater of Operations. As investigators delved into the Company C incident, they discovered that members of the company had kept a running tally of the number of kills they had accumulated and that other Iraqi civilians had been killed during the operation. For Corelli, 
The most significant element of the case was the investigation's revelation that, in briefing his unit immediately before Operation Iron Triangle, Steele had told his troops that all the military-aged males on a small portion of the operation's objective were to be considered enemy combatants and therefore could be killed without the step of positively identifying an enemy posing a threat. Corelli feared that Steele's guidance reflected broader problems within the brigade and that Steele's command climate had contributed to wanton killings. Steele had based his justification on an interpretation of the ROE that allowed enemy personnel that had been declared enemy combatants, including AQI, to be killed simply based on their status, regardless of whether they were making hostile acts. This was the same ROE, for example, that the coalition had applied after declaring JAM enemy combatants during the 2004 uprisings. Steele had applied his ROE interpretation to the portion of his brigade's objective in which intelligence reports indicated that enemy personnel from AQI were present. But MNCI investigators concluded later that this interpretation had confused many of the soldiers and leaders in the assault force, who concluded that the entire operation was being conducted according to status-based rules allowing enemy personnel to be shot on sight. The MNCI investigation also concluded that Steele's interpretation had been reached, quote, after a tortured and convoluted reading of the ROE, end quote. However, a parallel investigation by the 101st Airborne Division into the brigade's command climate diverged from MNCI's assessment, concluding that, quote, Although the command climate had the potential to contribute to a third BCT soldier being more likely to use deadly force in a situation where he or she is authorized to do so under the applicable ROE, or Rules of Engagement, it is apparent that the brigade commander's comments and actions did not result in a command climate that encouraged illegal, wanton, or superfluous killing. Some third BCT officers, however, clearly felt that it did. End quote. After reviewing these opposing viewpoints, Corelli concluded that Steele's command climate had contributed to the incident, and the MNCI commander ordered the Criminal Investigation Division to open an investigation of Steele on charges of dereliction of duty, obstruction of justice, and making a false official statement. Contributing to Corelli's decision was an MNCI review that determined that of MNCI's 14 brigades, Steele's brigade had produced the most friendly fire incidents, or instances in which U.S. troops fired on other U.S. forces or Iraqi forces, and second most civilian casualties, resulting in 15 investigations in less than six months. From Steele's perspective, a series of early interactions with Corelli had already gone badly, leaving the MNCI commander with a negative picture of Steele and his brigade. Most significantly, as U.S. leaders hailed the first meeting of the newly elected Council of Representatives on March 16th, that political news had been overshadowed by international coverage of a combined air assault that Steele and his brigade had conducted with Iraqi troops in Salahuddin province that morning. Operation Swarmer, as Steele's brigade had called it, was the largest air assault mission since the beginning of the war, with almost 2,000 soldiers from the 3rd Brigade, along with hundreds of Iraqi troops, assaulting into a 26-kilometer by 14-kilometer square area near Samara in search of insurgents and weapons caches, just as the new parliament was being seated. A senior officer later recalled that Corelli, upon learning of the mission, angrily commented, quote, 
The president just called me up and wanted to know what Swarmer was and how come it was the lead in the paper. End quote. Frustrated by the lack of information operations coordination that created a distraction from the more strategically significant political events in the capital, Corelli and other senior coalition leaders in Baghdad had angrily reproached Steele. The perplexed Steele had replied that no one had warned him to delay operations during the opening of the parliament, and that his operation had been a combined U.S.-Iraqi operation acting on information that Zarqawi himself might be present in the area. After receiving the Operation Iron Triangle and Command Climate Investigation reports a few weeks later, Corelli initially decided to relieve Steele for what he considered an, quote, unacceptable command climate, end quote, and for what Corelli considered Steele's failure to report the suspected killings when he first learned about the incident. The relief action progressed far enough that MNCI drafted a press release on what would have been the first removal of a U.S. brigade commander in Iraq. But after MNCI's legal experts did not recommend relief, Corelli settled on issuing a general officer letter of reprimand for creating a command climate, quote, where irresponsible behavior appears to have been allowed to go unchecked, end quote. Part of Corelli's motivation for punishing Steele was to deliver a message to the force. A senior Corelli aide later recalled, quote, I think the way that he reprimanded Colonel Steele, he thought was both appropriate from a military discipline point of view, but also from the point of view of signaling to the rest of the force the organizational impact, that doing this was not okay, and this is not how we should be doing business. End quote. The Weight of MNCI's Investigations while Corelli was still fully engaged in the investigations of Operation Iron Triangle and Colonel Steele, yet another incident came to light. The event had originally happened on March 12th when four soldiers from 1st Battalion 502nd Infantry Regiment raped, murdered, and burned the body of a 14-year-old Iraqi girl and then killed the remainder of her family in Yusufia, a rural town south of Baghdad. The crime would finally become known in June when insurgents captured and executed two soldiers from the same unit in apparent retribution for the murders. Faced with successive alleged incidents of crimes by his own troops, Corelli decided to invest a significant amount of his time and energy into their investigations and consequence management. The MNCI commander himself spent nearly 30 days reviewing and studying the incidents and personally presented the Haditha report to Casey during a two-hour briefing in July. The incident warranted his personal attention, Corelli later recalled, because, quote, Looking back at Lieutenant General Sanchez's issue with Abu Ghraib, I did not want to be put into the position that I think Sanchez was put into. He basically took recommendations from a written report that he did not have the time to sit down and read. So I looked at all of the evidence, rightfully or wrongfully. I was doing that to protect General Casey, to make sure that this thing got a thorough review by everyone, and we did not just sign off on it. End quote. Yet the investigations would reveal a philosophical fault line between Casey and Corelli. As the investigations mounted, Casey concluded that Corelli was spending too much time personally focusing on them, given the breadth of his responsibilities as MNCI commander. 
Like Corelli, Casey believed the incidents were morally reprehensible and should be investigated and prosecuted fully, but he did not share Corelli's judgment that the problems with interpreting the rules of engagement cut deeply or systematically across the force. Nor did he agree with Corelli's view that the incidents were having a significant impact on the coalition campaign. Instead, Casey became concerned about the potential impact the investigations were having on the vast majority of soldiers and Marines who were conducting their operations professionally. Quote, There was a constant patter about why were there so many investigations, end quote, Casey recalled later. Quote, the troops and the captains were saying, What the heck? Everything we do gets investigated. End quote. The two commanders' sharp differences of opinion came to a head during Corelli's presentation of the conclusions of the Haditha investigations, with Casey venting his frustration about his subordinate's focus, according to Corelli's recollection. The investigations and MNCI's responses to them also revealed deep philosophical fault lines about the proper conduct of the war with the operational-level command on one side and some tactical units, such as the 101st Airborne Division, on the other. Quote, The story of Colonel Steele and Operation Iron Triangle is about a fundamental difference of opinion about how to prosecute the war in Iraq, end quote, Brigadier General Michael Oates, one of the 101st's assistant division commanders, noted later. Many of the 101st leaders believed Corelli's emphasis on restraint at the tactical level simply did not make sense in the less urbanized insurgent strongholds in northern Iraq. They had bristled during Corelli's initial visit to the 101st headquarters in Tikrit in late January, when the MNCI commander had, among other things, discouraged the division from using artillery counterfire against insurgents firing mortars and argued that it was counterproductive in civilian areas. The interaction had left Oates and other 101st leaders convinced that Corelli did not appreciate the character of the conflict in Tikrit, Samara, and other areas that had been the heart of Saddam's regime. For his part, Corelli was convinced that, quote, there was a cultural issue as the army was struggling to understand the nonlinear battlefield. They did not understand the balance of kinetics and non-kinetics and how it could change things, end quote. To win in Iraq, Corelli believed he had to adjust U.S. units' ingrained focus on killing the enemy, which he considered a vestige from the Cold War era of interstate conflict, unsuited to an environment where identifying the enemy was extremely challenging, and the reality of who was actively fighting on the side of the insurgents seemed to change on a near-daily basis. In Steele, the MNCI commander believed he recognized the diametrically opposite view, and Steele agreed. In Steele's view, Corelli's emphasis on reconstruction was, quote, a fundamental failure to understand the threat in Iraq. We will never win Iraqis' hearts and minds. We are fundamentally in tension with their culture. And we can give them every dime of taxpayer money. We can build them every project in the world. And we will still not win their hearts and minds. End quote. For Steele and those who shared his views, Presence patrols and reconstruction projects would not solve Iraq's problems, and they argued instead that aggressively pursuing and killing enemy organizations, quote, led to fewer dead Americans, end quote, and greater operational success. By late spring 2006, Corelli had decided to take broad steps to suppress the point of view that Steele represented. 
Under Corelli's guidance, MNCI began using the Army Criminal Investigation Division to investigate escalation of force incidents, with a view to reduce those incidents by restraining liberal interpretations of the ROE. In cases where Criminal Investigations Division investigators believed they had discovered credible information that soldiers had committed a crime, those individuals were, quote, titled, end quote, a process that involved soldiers or leaders having their fingerprints collected, their mugshots taken, and their names added to the Defense Clearance and Investigations Index and Army Crime Record Center databases, where they would remain for a span of 40 years, regardless of the investigation's eventual outcome. The measure appeared to some subordinate commanders to be heavy-handed because the databases were often used in civilian employment decisions, military promotion and selection boards, and clearance reviews. At the same time, Corelli directed all MNCI units to conduct reinforcement training on what he considered the core warrior values, changed the procedures for following up on events that triggered command notifications, and prohibited use of the term, quote, military-aged males, end quote, because it could desensitize U.S. troops, quote, to the distinction between insurgents and male noncombatants, end quote. In writing to Marine leaders in the wake of the Haditha investigation, Corelli also recommended a broader counterinsurgency training regimen, noting that units, quote, were very comfortable with kinetic operations, but less so with the complexities of counterinsurgency operations in which the support of the population is essential to success, end quote. Inside Iraq, MNCI's core warrior values training reflected Corelli's concerns that a small number of individuals were tarnishing the reputation and the accomplishments of the broader coalition through criminal acts and violations of the laws of war. This group, Corelli believed, tended to view every Iraqi as the enemy, contemptuously refer to them by names such as Haji, and to presume, quote, that because we are at war, the rules that normally govern their conduct don't apply. End quote. The MNCI training packet included discussions of military values and integrity, as well as training vignettes that covered different situations coalition members might encounter. While several of the scenarios covered innocuous subjects, such as whether to handcuff a detainee in front of his family, or the use of female soldiers to search female Iraqis, one of the training scenarios was a close approximation of the Haditha incident in which a unit, having taken casualties in an IED attack, had to respond to its leader's pronouncement, quote, I think the guy in the window with the phone is the trigger man. Engage him. End quote. Participants were then quizzed about what they would do in such a situation, with attached teaching points emphasizing that immediately engaging was wrong, and stressing the ROE and the requirement to positively identify targets as threats before engaging, all part of Corelli's objective of rebalancing the kinetic and non-kinetic activities of many Army and Marine units. The Nuri al-Maliki Government Page 554 as the coalition struggled internally with the question of their forces' tactical posture, Iraqi politicians jockeyed for position in the process of forming the new Iraqi government in the aftermath of the December 2005 elections. Many American officials had hoped that Adel Abdel Mahdi, the senior SCIRI candidate, would secure the Shia UIA bloc's nomination for prime minister. However, in a secret ballot of UIA members of parliament on February 12th, he lost by one vote, 64 to 63, to Ibrahim al-Jafri, 
who benefited from the support of the 30 Soderist members of parliament. After the political turmoil and sectarian infiltration of the government that had occurred under Joffrey's year-long premiership, however, U.S. leaders were unwilling to support his return. Kurdish parties and powerful Shia politicians joined the United States in opposition to Joffrey's candidacy, creating an extended lame-duck period that frustrated Iraqis and coalition leaders alike. The hiatus between governments effectively froze coalition efforts to improve the Iraqi political environment and the capacity of the government with, quote, no focus and reform of ministries and no purging, end quote, of sectarian actors, as MNFI intelligence director Zahner later termed it. The frustration in Iraq's political stagnation reached to the highest levels of the U.S. government. On March 25th, Bush wrote a letter to Grand Ayatollah Ali Sistani, at least in part with the hopes that the Shia leader could spur the government formation process along. After praising Sistani's restraint in the wake of the Samara bombing, President Bush emphasized what he viewed as joint Iraqi-American goals, writing, quote, Like you, I am deeply concerned about the slow pace of government formation and hope for rapid progress in the coming days. Working together, we want to help build a democracy that respects the principles of majority rule with a respect for minority rights, as provided in Iraq's constitution. Iraq needs a strong, effective prime minister to lead it at this turning point in history. Iraq needs a prime minister who can unite the nation. We would not support a prime minister who cannot garner the necessary support across communities to meet the constitution's requirements, and thus would not be capable of leading a united Iraq. End quote. Bush concluded his letter hoping that Sistani would use his influence to encourage Iraq's leaders to take brave and decisive steps to demonstrate their commitment to a strong, unified Iraq. On April 20th, Joffrey finally acceded to the pressure to give up his candidacy and placed his support behind Nuri al-Maliki, a senior leader in Joffrey's Dawa party whom Khalilzad had quietly encouraged to seek the premiership. Two days later, Parliament took the required first step of electing a president, Patriotic Union of Kurdistan or PUK leader Jalal Talabani, and two vice presidents, paving the way for Maliki's nomination as prime minister. When the UIA took another vote for premier after Joffrey's withdrawal, Maliki defeated Mahdi by the same 64-63 vote that Joffrey had won ten weeks earlier, with the same Sadrist support. Nuri al-Maliki grew up in a small, middle-class neighborhood near Karbala, 121 kilometers south of Baghdad. He was heavily influenced by his grandfather, a tribal leader and Shia cleric who participated in Iraq's 1920 uprising against the British, and his father, an Arab nationalist who sided with the military against the Ba'ath Party after the 1963 coup. After earning a bachelor's degree in theology and a master's degree in Arabic, Maliki worked in the government education department in Hilla and had convinced the department's senior Ba'ath Party officials that he was a Ba'athist sympathizer, even as he secretly worked within the outlawed Dawa Party. He had joined the Dawa Party in 1970 and remained a member as Saddam cracked down on the party in the mid-1970s. When the crackdown intensified at the beginning of the Iran-Iraq War, Maliki fled to Syria, where he established a network of Dawa activists from Iran to Beirut. 
He left Syria for Iran in order to fight against the Iraqi regime in 1982, but eventually returned to Syria to oversee the Dawa Party newspaper published there and to become an important political operative. In Damascus, he formed close ties to the Syrian regime of Hafez al-Assad, including to Assad's senior security strategist, Mohammed Nassif Kerbeik, and reportedly took part in planning militant operations focused on assassinating Saddam. Following the U.S. invasion, Maliki returned to Iraq, where he became a senior Dawa Party member of parliament. On May 20th, the Iraqi parliament approved Maliki's premiership and a council of ministers that included eight Sunnis, seven Kurds, 21 Shia, and one Christian. With a parliamentary support base composed of more Sadrists, 30, than members of his own Dawa Party, 28, Maliki found himself reliant on Muqtada Sadr first to form and then to maintain a government. As a result, the Sadrists gained cabinet posts as the ministers of health, transportation, and agriculture. The Sadrists' powerful role within Maliki's cabinet would have far-reaching effects, as even the hint of support for coalition operations against Shia militias could result in Maliki's ruling coalition falling apart. Coalition leaders, however, welcomed Maliki's accession to the premiership enthusiastically, judging him a welcome change from the indecisive sectarian Jaffery. Maliki, quote, said all the right things, end quote, British Ambassador William Patey recalled. Quote, he was leading a government of national unity. They agreed to a national program in May. It was based on national reconciliation, national recovery, international engagement. He said all the right things about inclusion. We were quite encouraged by his steps and initial statements. End quote. Casey, Khalilzad, and other American leaders believed that Maliki's government of, quote, national unity, end quote, could finally take action against the violence being carried out by sectarian actors both inside and outside the government. For MNFI leaders, Maliki's nomination in late April signaled that the coalition's troop drawdown plan could remain on track. On May 1st, Casey reported to Rumsfeld that the, quote, breakthrough in the formation of the Iraqi government, coupled with the continuing development of the Iraqi security forces, sets the conditions to go forward with the next force structure step an off-ramp of two BCTs that will result in 3,800 troops not deploying to Iraq. End quote. Casey later described the heady time of the government formation as a, quote, false bump, end quote. At the tactical level, the situation continued to deteriorate as the Iraqi political parties formed their unity government. On May 10th, the newly elected president, Talibani, announced that 1,091 civilians had been killed in Baghdad in April, a sign that the burst of killings following the Samara bombing had not dissipated at all. Two weeks later, the Iraqi government arrested 42 soldiers from the Iraqi army's 16th Brigade in the Dora neighborhood of Baghdad, who had effectively become a Sunni death squad, assassinating Shia Baghdadis connected with the government and even murdering their own commander when he threatened to report their activities. As the summer approached, Casey himself was unsure of how to interpret the increasing violence. Provided with an assessment of the growing number of daily attacks on May 31st, the MNFI commander wrote in the margin, quote, Attacks may be the wrong metric. Who are they against? End quote. The note seemed to show that the coalition leader's thinking had not yet caught up with the situation, which, by reasonable definitions, had become a civil war.
Negotiations with the Sunni Insurgency The worsening violence was partly masked by signs that a significant number of Sunni insurgent factions were responding to MNFI's outreach efforts by contemplating a ceasefire with the coalition. The discussions of early 2006 in which Lynch and other U.S. officials had participated offered promise in this regard, but in order to take the next steps, Casey had demanded that the insurgents demonstrate the ability to reduce violence locally in exchange for potential prisoner releases. Though the evidence was inconclusive about whether the insurgent representatives could actually deliver the confidence-building measures Casey required, the months of meetings between insurgent and coalition representatives led to a formalized exchange of requests between the two groups. In a May 10th letter provided to MNFI, a broad array of Sunni insurgent groups outlined 16 major demands, including the preservation of Iraq as a unitary state, the cancellation of the Coalition Provisional Authority, or CPA, written transitional administrative law, the holding of new democratic elections to reverse the victory of sectarian parties, the purging of militias from the Iraqi security forces, and the recall of former Iraqi army and security forces while, quote, purging and removing bad elements who committed crimes against the people, as well as dishonest and corrupt elements, and referring them to the judiciary, end quote. The insurgent groups also called for a constitutional amendment process to cancel the Constitution's debothification sections, change the planned distribution of revenues from national resources, and review the federal status of the, quote, region of Iraqi Kurdistan, end quote. The desire to amend the Constitution was not just an insurgent aspiration. A December 2005 poll had shown fully 44% of Iraqis supporting such a step with the Sunni-majority provinces of Salahuddin and Nineveh registering 76% and 78% support, respectively. In a final point that revealed much about the Sunni insurgents' changing calculus, the May 10th letter called for, quote, ensuring complete cooperation and coordination between Iraq and America in confronting the Iranian-Persian presence in and infiltration into the internal affairs of Iraq and combating all official and party authorities that facilitate and encourage this presence and its blatant intervention into the affairs of our country. End quote. As one of the Sunni negotiators told Lynch, MNFI's chief negotiator, quote, General, we hate you. We hate the Americans, your occupiers. But we hate the Persians worse. End quote. To the surprise of many MNFI leaders, many of the demands of the Sunni resistance organizations seemed relatively reasonable and almost all political in nature. Encouraged by the talks, MNFI released nearly 3,000 detainees as part of the broader effort toward reconciliation in June, although amid the intensifying sectarian violence, it was difficult to gauge whether the insurgent groups were actually fulfilling their end of the bargain by ceasing attacks. The Zarqawi Raid Like the positive developments coming out of negotiations with Sunni insurgents, the extended hunt for Zarqawi was bearing fruit. A major lead had come in January when Iraqi Interior Ministry forces captured Abu Zar, an al-Qaeda in Iraq operative who specialized in launching car bomb attacks on Baghdad. Realizing his importance, other special operations forces obtained Abu Zar's transfer and, in turn, he provided the location of an AQI safehouse in Yusufia, a city in Iraq's Triangle of Death, 
where he had met senior AQI leader Abu Ayyub al-Masri. After watching the safe house through intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance platforms for three months, U.S. troops were rewarded for their patience in April, when several vehicles arrived at the abandoned house nearly simultaneously. Special Operations Forces leaders ordered an assault force to be launched, and nine senior AQI members were captured, including the AQI Emir of northern Iraq, Baghdad's AQI media Emir, and a Sufi Iraqi known simply as Alawi. Ironically, Alawi had been previously arrested in September 2005 and released from Abu Ghraib in February 2006, only to be recaptured by the Special Operations Assault Force six weeks later. After 39 days in detention, Alawi revealed critical information that an Iraqi named Sheikh Abd ar-Rahman was Zarqawi's spiritual advisor and met with him weekly. Alawi also revealed the location of Rahman's house. Armed with this information, other special operations forces shifted assets to watch Rahman's house, chronicling his activities for three weeks, noticing Rahman at times switched between multiple vehicles in one outing a tactic known to be used when AQI operatives met with Zarqawi. On June 7th, Rahman again used this tactic, eventually arriving at a house in Hibhib, a town northeast of Bakuba and a mere 19 kilometers cross-country from the coalition base at Balad. As the house in question met the profile for Zarqawi's safe house, SOF leadership became convinced that Rahman was probably meeting Zarqawi. Facing the reality that the location of the house made it difficult for an assault force to kill or capture Zarqawi successfully, special operations leaders instead requested a lethal strike by a pair of orbiting U.S. Air Force F-16s. When a man matching Zarqawi's description appeared on the full-motion video surveilling the target house, they gave the order to drop laser and global positioning system or GPS-guided bombs on the target and directed an assault force to move immediately to the site. As the members of the assault force arrived and secured the site, they found a grievously wounded man being loaded into an Iraqi ambulance. The wounded man, who would die before he could be questioned, was Zarqawi himself, and the long manhunt for Iraq's most barbarous sectarian murderer was finally over. To a great degree, the success was a result of three transformational ingredients for special operations forces. The improvement of the targeting process, the acquisition and effective integration of additional intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance assets, and the professionalization of interrogation procedures at purpose-built temporary detention facilities, all of which had matured in Iraq in 2005 to 2006. When Casey called Rumsfeld to inform him of the most significant kill-capture mission since the capture of Saddam, Rumsfeld's initial thoughts when answering the unscheduled phone call from Iraq were, quote, Jesus Christ, what the hell else could have gone wrong in that place? End quote. The SecDef's response typified U.S. anxiety with the Iraq mission. Still, the killing of Zarqawi was undoubtedly a coalition success and the culmination of many months of hard work. Moreover, many coalition leaders hoped that the killing of AQI's founder would help stem the sectarian violence that was wrecking the country. With the main Sunni driver for sectarian violence gone, the coalition might gain some breathing room to get the situation under control. At the beginning of 2006, Casey and MNFI believed that their campaign plan was broadly on track. Indicators of violence were down, electoral participation was up, 
The Iraqi security forces appeared to be growing in size and capability, and the Sunni insurgency appeared to be fracturing. As a result, Casey and his command determined to continue or even accelerate their process of off-ramping coalition combat power, consolidating coalition forces, and passing responsibility to the Iraqis. The bombing of the Oscaria Mosque on February 22nd highlighted Iraq's fragility, but in the Samara bombing's immediate aftermath, Casey and MNFI mistakenly perceived only a temporary spike in violence, concluding that the attack had not set off a civil war and that the Iraqi political process could resolve Iraq's problems. MNFI leaders' denials that Iraq had devolved into civil war were reminiscent of the coalition's 2003 denial that an active insurgency had developed, and, as in 2003, MNFI in 2006 believed the situation could be addressed by tactical responses and might even provide an opportunity to showcase the Iraqis' self-sufficiency. As MNFI's assessments grew less sanguine in the spring of 2006, Casey's views changed to reflect his realization that the Iraq conflict had shifted from an insurgency against coalition forces to a new and complex war for political and economic power among Iraqis. Despite this change, Casey maintained his belief that, as had been the case in Bosnia, the locals needed to solve their sectarian problems themselves, a conclusion that validated MNFI's decision not to alter its campaign plan. At this critical juncture, the seeding of a unity government led by Maliki, the killing of Zarqawi, and seemingly successful outreach to Sunni insurgents convinced Casey that the coalition might have, quote, turned the corner, end quote. Casey later recalled the optimism of this period, noting, quote, Maliki gets the government formed at the end of May, we get Zarqawi on June 7th, and he, Maliki, appoints his security ministers the next day. So there is this great groundswell of good feeling. At the beginning of June, there was a very positive sense that we had finished the UN process and we had an elected Iraqi government based on their constitution, so there was a great sense of optimism. Their army was in good shape and the police had more work to do, but we were going in the right direction. End quote. In actuality, the shrine bombing did not mark the start of the violent power struggle among Iraqis. It marked instead the point at which MNFI's perception of the conflict began to catch up with the reality that resistance to the coalition occupation was no longer the most significant driver of violence. The violent power struggle among Iraq's ethno-sectarian groups had been sparked in earnest at least a year earlier by the formation of the Jafari-led government, and in truth, it had been ongoing since the fall of Saddam. Iraqis, by contrast, had understood the magnitude of the bombing, recognized how quickly the situation was unraveling, and behaved accordingly. The summer of 2006 and the sectarian violence that it would unleash would upend Casey's thesis and challenge the core philosophy and assumptions of the coalition's strategic plans, setting the campaign on a completely new direction. End of Chapter 19, Part 2 The Iraqi Civil War Comes into the Open January to June 2006 Read by Adam Cable Milwaukee, Wisconsin 2021